Even in the void, we find community, and through community, we find the strength to embrace the void. Hello, good evening, and remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor? You are not a Buddhist, you are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 139 of Embrace the Void, where this week we've got something a little different. Uh, Some YouTubers and podcast friends of mine organized an online salon to discuss issues facing the left, um, and we had a great chat about the state of play and what comes next. It's a little longer than our normal episodes, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, so hope you enjoy. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. Yeah. Okay. So I just hit record. Um, and today we are trying something new. We have what should we call this? A podcaster symposium, where I've got some of my friends and online friends together to just essentially have a chat about like what we're doing when we podcast and like how we can have productive public conversations better. Um so why don't we start with just um introductions if everyone wants to say a few words about who they are and uh, uh, what their project is. So I'll knock it off. Um, I'm Toby. I'm the host of the Political Philosophy Podcast, which is exactly what it sounds like. I talk about issues in political philosophy, both with guests and sometimes just by myself. Um, Yeah. Um, Who wants to go next? Uh, Well, uh, my channel is called Jerb the Humanist on YouTube. I'm Jeremiah or Jerb. Uh, Jerb's a fun nickname that I actually go by in real life. And the topics I cover are fairly nebulous. And uh, the last year I was working on finishing my doctorate. So now that that's over with, I'm starting to actually put out more content. So uh, for those subscribed, I'm actually putting back in the work. So check that out. Nice. Uh, if I could jump in, my name is uh, Keegan Irish. Uh, I have a podcast called uh, The Poplar Tapes. And uh, really in there, what we try and do is just take ideas and uh, terminology that come up uh, in generalized like political discourse and like break it down in terms of certain uh, philosophical understandings, generally from like kind of like a leftist anti-capitalist uh, type of perspective. And uh, so I'm a um, I have a master's degree in philosophy, and in my working life now, I mostly do kind of uh, community organizing stuff around uh, climate change. Um, I'm Chrissy or Christina. I um, am on the Christiosity channel on YouTube, and um, yeah, I'm not particularly highly educated or anything like that. Um, 
but uh, I've been out in, uh, I think there's a place also for people whose um, background is more practical than academic as well. And uh, because I had a lot of years working um, as a case manager, as a, a person who works with uh, people with cognitive disabilities in the healthcare industry, uh, you know, just sort of a wide base of, of practical on the ground experience. I feel like I can bring some of that. Great. My name is Aaron Rabinowitz. I teach ethics at Rutgers and I've got a couple of podcasts, uh, Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space, um, both of which are really about uh, trying to survive in this world through doing a little bit more fun philosophy in our lives, one of them involving a lot more science fiction, um, pretty much what I do. So we're all podcasters or YouTubers or you know, people making content publicly. And I think we're all broadly on the left. Like, we might get into, like, some of the finer distinctions there, but I don't think anyone here is, like, a Trump voter or anything like that, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, So this started when I just just did this silly post on Twitter. I'm a terrible Twitter whore. And um, I was sort of like... You know, I don't uniformly hate the idea of the intellectual dark web. I think the mission statement of, like, having these big, open, fearless conversations, yeah, that sounds good. Um, Unfortunately, it's just kind of become something that's just a sort of reactionary bashing on the imagined, and I say imagined, failings of social justice advocates in a way that's not charitable and not fair, and, and frankly just not even interesting anymore. Like, I've heard that take, and there's only so many times I can hear it. And so I sort of said, we need, like, our own intellectual dark web that actually does what it promised to do. But what does does that look like, I guess, in practice? Like, if we're not going to do what they're doing, um, and we want to try our own thing... How sh- what what should be the parameters of that? What should be the sort of uh, values and ethos that underpin it? So that's a huge freaking question, and just everyone feel free to jump in with their two cents. Yeah, well, I was thinking about um, this prompt earlier uh, as we were preparing to record, and the way the IDW is framed... Um, not very explicitly, but almost implicitly, is sort of an organic, you know, bubbling to the top of, you know, people uh, raising legitimate concerns that a lot of people are afraid to say. And having these um, people in an, in prominent positions speak for those who are afraid to speak what they're saying. And that implicitly implies an almost, you know, an organic bubbling to the top of these controversial ideas. Um, but I think when you unpack a lot of that uh, a little further, it's a lot less organic. And of course, the controversial ideas tend to be actually mainstream, quote unquote, orth- orthodoxies that are just now being challenged relative to history. And so I think, you know, coming from a broadly left perspective um, or progressive or whatever term you want to use, 
Um, largely, I, I picture things from an organizer's perspective, a more democratic perspective. And I think if it were to actually uh, manifest in a productive way, um, like you can see how, say, the IDW, it has a lot of different actors that are actually kind of astroturf, like Ruben and Greta Christina, or no, not Greta Christina, uh, uh, Christina Hoff Summers, uh, everything. And I, I think looking at it from the bottom up would be better. Um, I don't, I don't think I have as much organizing perspective as keegan but like i think there's a way to give actual grassroots democratic representation um from a more bottom-up way rather than this top-down way just on a structural uh note just looking at it so th mm -hmm. that's broadly how i see the problem with the idw yeah, and I, mean, I think it's tricky too. Like, it was originally kind of a joke about, and 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 it still is to me, kind of a joke about how one organizes, especially on the left, especially when there is um, a lot of conflict and a, and a lot of like attempts to immediately co-op anything that is organizational into some sort of identity or consumer product, and how how to sort of balance out all of those issues and like i've i've ended up for myself as a community organizer in a particularly weird sort of solution to some of those problems that i'm not sure is fully replicable at scale um but i do think that like we, we do have to i mean I, I do think that it is a really important question that you you got people together here we, we pulled people together to talk about um organization on the left and i don't feel like i have very good clear answers on what that should look like um i don't think that it should be this we're you know bucking the system and we're the truth tellers or something like that i think there's a much more like simple you know we're trying to find functional consensus um in a way that improves people's quality of life like that seems to me to be what leftism should be about at this point and i'm like and i despair in saying that looking at like how the primary went in terms of finding <laughs> compromise uh on the oh left. boy yeah um I mean, one of the things that we should just say right out, I think, is that there's a significant uh, amount of wankery uh, just to the whole concept of the intellectual dark web. And <laughs> and there's been nothing but a lot of wankery to come out of it, you know. So uh, I think sometimes you have to consider um, right from the beginning, uh, uh, like you say, what should the project be? What do you really... I am not out here trying to put out ideas for the sake of ideas, um, for this holy uh, purity of, of pure and rational thought somewhere. And I don't think that exists. And um, I also think that whether they admitted to it or not, um, the intellectual dark web constrains conversations and has many taboos you know for instance you're not supposed to say to someone i think that's racist and i think that's bad <laughs> like, like just literally you are right now doing a racist thing and that's not okay and it's an ignorant and harmful thing to do that's caused a lot of pain like you can't just say that to someone like Sam Harris and that be okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's it's very interesting like 
I think the way in which they kind of set up their organization, like I'd almost reverse the priority from the way uh, Toby pitched it originally, where it's like it started out with them having these these broadly reactionary positions and then they sort of like found one another online and like have a conglomerated um into something and so it it in order for people to sort of engage in that space they have to have like a prior commitment to a lot of these reactionary positions and so you can have what appear the sort of appearance of uh like deep like searching conversation where it's like that that seem to be like polar opposites you know i think about the um the the debate between uh sam harris and jordan peterson about the existence of god or something and it's like oh here appear to be two fellows who like have these opposing views on something so fundamental but i think if you broadly agree on um the structure of these kind of political hierarchies and that they ought to be maintained then that frees you up to have these like like open-ended discussions about metaphysics which like in fact have little bearing on the way in which you want to like uh really pitch yourself politically well, it's kind of like the one common denominator is you've got to think that social justice warriors are destroying Western civilization, right? <laughs> like, as, yeah. as long as you agree on that, you can disagree on a bunch of other stuff. But like um, Chrissy said, um, if you think, hey, actually, like, the way you're obsessed with race and IQ might be a little bit racist, like, <laughs> that's the taboo that you can't break. I think the other thing on an organisational level that's really striking about them, is there's clearly a big market out there for people who will trash feminists, say, and give them reasons to dislike feminists. Because I think what it sort of is, is there's a lot of people out there who feel really angry at feminism in a way that's probably about them and their sort of prejudice, essentially, right? And if someone can come along and talk about feminism in a way that trashes it, but, like, sounds smart to that person, there's a lot of money to be made in filling mm -hmm. that role. And I sort of, like, despair a lot, because then, like, for those of us who have either a pro-feminist or, like, or even just, like, a nuanced take where, like, I say I think social justice people get it right and wrong, and we can talk about that, you know? Um... There's not money to be had there, really, in the same way, I don't think. And, like, that's another challenge of, like, if you can, like, say feminism is... I mean, this is what it really comes down to. Feminism is the reason you're not getting laid. That's what people really want to hear, right? Yeah. A lot of angry young men want to hear that. Or that, like, black people's problems are their own fault. People will just give you time and money and energy in a way that doesn't exist on the other side, or even for people who want to genuinely have nuanced and, and complicated conversations. Mm -hmm. It does seem like there is more solidarity among that group, unfortunately, than within the contemporary left for however you want to define it. Mm -hmm. And that really does induce a lot of despair into me. Um, of course, you know, I don't sit on that despair, but I am... I do get somewhat frustrated with the left. Um, let's say, you know, the left is uh, trying broadly. Say, say if the IDW's goal is to be anti-SJW, let's say broadly the political left's goal is to attack current structures and capitalism, etc. There is 
still infighting, but whereas the IDW is able to capitalize off their differences um, and show up on each other's yes. uh, mm-hmm. appearances, th- like they boost each other just by interacting with each other. There is, you know, there's different strains and factions that are more willing to split off because partially because there's no financial incentive, I guess, in or I guess. I didn't. I, I actually don't. I won't try to explain why, uh, but like, there's broadly a very. Uh, a, this is almost a slur, but I'll just say the class reductionist left, who, as soon as you actually get into inter, intersectional uh, activism, like that, is completely written off. And on the contrary, intersectional activism sometimes does not actually it it almost seems to deny any class or material um integration at all Mm -hmm. and like i think broadly the solution is solidarity where you know we do recognize our common interests and you know i i can picture a framework in which you know uh quote unquote the intersectional strain is able to recognize um and act with you know the other strains and likewise vice versa in that we all have common interests and hopefully when we're talking about things other than material interests other other bigotries and other you know factors in why people are marginalized that we perpetuate on each other are secondary to larger structural issues from you know a ruling class down on the rest of us like we're all in this together and hopefully that should be the goal but that seems to be the problem is this um conflict that seems to there's there's little incentive for solidarity at this point it seems um i, I hope that's been make, making sense no i thought that was- yeah um, I want to sort of add to what y'all were saying about the market side of things that I think part of the reason that the, the intellectual dark web model works is because there's specifically right now a market for people who claim to be centrist and especially people who claim to be former lefties who are now centrist that are willing to sort of, you know, and sometimes I think they're earnest about it. Many of them, I think, genuinely are true believers. But like they, there's a market for speaking to this idea that. Um, in a intersectional left social justice lefties have gone too far in some fundamental way. And it's like, it's a market that's not just on the conservative side, but as, as Jeremiah was saying that there are like the, the structure the, the, the class war solo kind of, um, folks on the far left who also want to talk about how, uh, social justice issues have, uh, gone too far and how that seems problematic. Um, and I've also wanted to jump back to, uh, something Keegan said about, um, the 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 Jordan Peterson um, Sam Harris interview because like to me that's that was such a, a lame sort of non non interviews those two philosophically speaking but like the interview that was really I think everyone should go and listen to with Sam Harris is Sam Harris and Ezra Klein talking about Charles Murray mm-hmm. after Sam Harris had Charles Murray on. Uh, Ezra Klein debated Sam Harris about why Charles Murray is kind of actually a problematic figure and like why you shouldn't sort of not contextualize him. And in doing so, I think laid out a lot of very useful information for people who don't have time to read Charles Murray's giant books to like find out who these really these individuals are often what what their real project and full narrative is. Um, so 
thinking concretely about things that I think we should be trying to do if we're going to be the antithesis of the dark web, it seems to me that the goal is to bring more context and less shock value that like it's it's you know as bad as that is for a profit model right the the problem is that people want to take things that sound really shocking out of context and that like the real work that has to be done most of the time on the internet is the the boring legwork of like actually putting back into context what's going on right and so maybe like on that note um it seems like you could understand this market problem like through the lens of like the free speech that is often claimed on, on, on part of these kind of right-wing grifter guys. Like they're always claiming that like their, their free speech is being impinged upon and, you know, we need these uh, alternative networks to like really speak freely and so on and so forth. But what this kind of neutral value of speech is though it was just like a, a, an open space in which anyone could participate at any given time. What that kind of uh, belies is the way in which there are actually like extremely differential um, kinds of distributions of the like mechanisms for broadcasting your speech. And like we're talking about like the funding that's available to get these uh, ideas out there. And um, there's going to be a lot more of that like materially on for people who are going to be basically um, not challenging like kind of certain set of like capitalist um, status quo uh, models. And what I think that also allows for them is something that at the more like immediate level that when I, when I meet people who are really into these guys, like really into this dark web types, um, what I find is that like nothing I can really say to them in conversation, like has much of an effect of like uh, piercing that bubble of the way in which their, their worldview has been conditioned by like consuming large amounts of this media because they get that really like intense personal um, like parasocial relationship with that person, you know, and they come to like trust them and invest in them because they see so much of them and see them as like a guiding light in their, in their day-to-day lives through that like online platform. And so the ability to like reach more people in that capacity, it like, it makes them very strong and allows them to sort of bring people in ideologically, I think in a way that like, you know, you do see with people making media on the left, but they're, ability to broadcast that is much, much more limited. I think uh, uh, to to that point, and this is something that I've talked about before, when we allow without really interrogating the whole concept of free speech to move just from speech to the idea of platforms, mm-hmm. then we are moving the conversation to one of property and access to um, you know, I mean, if you're talking about a platform, you're talking about something, uh, your equipment or um, uh, someone who can uh, get you a stage or give you um, is willing to give you money or, you know, I mean, that is a different conversation. It's a conversation that some people are going to have more access to platforms than others. And that is going and if that's what you're talking about. That's not quite the same thing as just simple freedom of speech. Because you could just say what you want to say, but it's about wanting to have um, access to a platform that will magnify your speech, which means that you are going to have to, to some degree or another, suck up to the property owners if you're not a property owner yourself, or to those who have access to these sort of expensive or... uh, 
even just the time that you would spend, you know. So if you're adding that into that and you are demanding that people, um, like, for instance, if you see a bunch uh, uh, what Ben Shapiro shows up at your college and there's a bunch of yelling people, you know, uh, ben Shapiro has tons of platforming possibilities open to him at all times, but the people who are um, protesting him do not. They are, it is much harder for them to have their speech be placed out into the marketplace. So, like, you're dealing with already a very unfair and unequal interaction. And then you're saying, because these people are yelling and they're unpleasant and they're saying all these awful things, they're denying us our rightful platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's saying something very different than, and I think we have to structurally challenge that conversation and say, that's, wait a second, you, when we mm-hmm. say you don't have a right to a platform and you certainly don't have a right to all any and all platforms you might want and without criticism, we're talking about giving more freedom of speech, not less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So build. Uh, yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, so building off that, I think there's a misconception. And I think in a lot of cases, it may be a deliberate misconception. I'm sort of always neutral as to how far people are just sort of in a particular ideological groove or they are being self-consciously deceptive with what they say. But I think there's a misconception that free speech is one thing that's, like, clearly defined and there's a sort of literary and legal and ideological tradition backing it up. And that if you don't have free speech, then you'll necessarily have to have, like, violence. But there's a, there's a, there's a huge pluralism of ways that you can structure conversations. And there's a huge pluralism of ways that institutions can inform and elevate and give priority to certain forms of conversations. So just to be obvious about it, um, the type of conversation we're having now has a particular set of norms to it. We haven't like written them down anywhere, but we all sort of have sort of seemed to agree that we'll sort of roughly let everyone speak for a certain amount of time, we won't interrupt them, and if we do, there'll be particular norms That's a different conversation than you'd have in a formal debate. That's a different conversation than you'd have on TV news, right? Um, You know, the types of conversations we have in democracies are very different. Like, the political culture of America is different to the political culture of the UK is different to France, right? And so there's a huge pluralism of ways that we can engage and to have conversations. And what the move seems to be is to take a very specific set of uh, norms and institutions that they like because it elevates their speech and say this one very particular type of free speech is the, the model of free speech and anything else is necessarily ruled out. But, like, the world just isn't that simple. And, you know, there's, it, it's, it's incredibly complicated, and I don't pretend to have all the answers to say, like, how should we talk to each other? What are the goals? That, what, what are we trying to achieve in talking to each other? Are we doing this pl- pure platonic search for truth? Are we trying to change people's minds? Are we trying to affect outcomes or change institutions? 
Um, so it's just very, very naive to the point where I wonder if they're even sincere in saying free speech means Ben Shapiro gets to have unrestricted access to show up on every college campus he wants and not be interrupted. You know, I'll, I'll stop that. It, it seems to me like my 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 immediate instinct is to kind of be a little provocative and say, like, free speech just wholesale doesn't exist. Uh, and that's kind of shocking. And I really what I need to do is unpack that because it seems what people want is, you know, speech without consequences. But when you look at the flip side, ideally, uh, there's this, you know, interrogative model of we have these discussions and we get better and better ideas. That is sort of their model. And that's not untethered from the world. You want your speech to have positive effects on the world. And that's not like untethered from the world. And, uh, you know, different organizations can curtail that. Like uh, Facebook provides a lot of coverage to independent media outlets and a lot of grassroots, um, small independent journalists would be they would probably have to shut down if Facebook just cut them off wholesale. And so uh, even just looking at the government versus private curtailing of speech doesn't work. And we have to recognize that in some sense, we do want there to be consequences of speech, positive or negative. It, you know, it, it's just how do we uh, organize our structures of speech in a way that is most conducive towards what our goals are. So, um, I, I know you're intending to sort of provoke an adverse reaction, but I think I largely agree with that. I think I would, mm -hmm. no, I would maybe phrase it slightly differently instead of saying there's no such thing as free speech. I would say there is no single coherent fixed point that defines free speech doctrine. What you have is a, is a set of recurring themes a set of particular rhetorics that we use. And those are important and, and, and valuable in the idea of free expression, exchange of ideas, the autonomy of the individual that sort of underlie all this are important, but they don't cohere to a final thing. And if you look at the legal and political debates around that, it's just this bunch of analogies, invented for the occasion arguments, shaky distinctions, exemptions to those same distinctions. And um, ultimately, like, we want to see free speech as, like, the referee of the game. Like, everyone's going to compete and come in, and but there's this fixed point that everyone can agree on, and we can't. It's, it is an artefact of the politics it supposedly transcends, which doesn't make it meaningless or non-existent, but it's something we're always going to have to say of these particular sets of arguments. Which do we give priority in any given moment? And so the idea that you can... I think the IDW move is just to define those set of problems away at the outset by saying free speech is X, and if you think it's Y, then you're wrong. And you can do that, but it's not a philosophically compelling argument. It's also very ahistorical. Yeah, I think the ahistorical point is key because in in my view, like usually when I hear free speech invoked, it's as um kind of 
as like an ideal in order to legitimate like what Christy was saying, uh, like a certain set of um, material conditions that allow you to like produce speech and and, and broadcast it, you know, like the, precisely their access to again, like those stages and the, that equipment and the time that it takes to produce this content and then uh, promote it online through various marketing channels and so on, like their access is um, is conditioned by what it is that they that they have to say and how uh, amenable that is to um, the kind of existing power structures. And so um I think they use free speech as this like free floating signifier as this like ideal it, more in order to legitimate their access to that than in any kind of uh, sincere way in which they, they truly believe in like a set of ideals or something like that. Like you kind of raised the question of whether or not these appeals are just cynical and that Jerb said he doesn't think it really exists. And I guess I'd be in a similar camp to that where I would say that it's, it's not that it doesn't exist, but the the way in which it exists is as this is is deployed very cynically in my view to legitimate these existing structures of like the production of uh, ideas. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to like I don't know anybody's intentions and I'm, it, interrogating other people's intentions is uh, kind of fruitless. But whether or not they mean to be cynical and full of shit, they are, and you know they are. <laughs> Because they come out and they'll sue you <laughs> or yeah. because you were very critical of them in a way they didn't like or they will make lists of professors um, that they don't like. Or, you know, if somebody gets if, if a woman gets too yelly in public, they're going to put her on blast and have their fanboys go and attack that woman. You know, I mean, these are uh, I still get to hear about somebody in Canada pulling a uh, fire alarm like five years ago, six years yeah. ago now. Like this was the greatest attack on any free speech ever seen, you know, <laughs> as opposed to, all right, it's about time we get past the fact that a woman was rude and you didn't <laughs> like it. It's, it's about time. Like she hasn't, she's been hiding from abuse for years now. So you guys won. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and I think there is this. I think Chrissy, you brought up this important practical question that, like, um, you know, f free speech in the world means you know actual activity that that takes time and money and resources, and there are scarcities of all of those things, and those scarcities drive us to have to try to address this question. And I think Toby's right that like there is no absolute definition of free speech in the sense of a functional balance of all of the different people's perspectives on what speech should necessarily contain. And so in the absence of that kind of absolute or unifying um, standard, we have to fall back, it seems like, on sort of pragmatic concerns about sort of what are the goals of our speech and where are we going to make costs. So there's always going to be these kind of value judgments about, um, you know, this person's speech, while technically free, is not one that we as a, a, an, an entity are going to invest resources in or allow for the investing of resources in. Though I do still actually think that, like, there is a sense in which 
certain positions and certain individuals no longer need to be like there's a point at which you just stop needing to waste energy on certain individuals so like you know recently david brooks came up as a good example of someone who should never be read or platformed by anyone ever (laughs) because he has nothing of value to contribute to the conversation um and like you know it takes a while to get there to know that for sure 20 or 30 years of him writing the same terrible article over and over again but like eventually you can just say well no look charles murray really just is out for a right wing agenda and like not putting him in that context is not understanding his full position um and then like you know if those agendas are things like you know we want to bring back um positive eugenics or something then it's understandable why certain you know campuses are going to say we don't want resources devoted to this any more than we want resources devoted towards flat eartherism or something like that but like as y'all i think have pointed out there isn't a uniformity of concern for free speech here. When you ask these folks, why aren't you for a chaired position on flat eartherism? None of them seem to need to like still have someone, you know, voraciously arguing for that position in academia. But like they seem to think that there's a deep seated need for someone to really be arguing for, for example, pretty thoroughgoing misogynistic positions within uh, academia for those positions to be understood by our students, because it's like I totally buy that in you know my ethics class, I can teach you know views about population control by Hardin, a well-known white supremacist or something like that. But it's you know it's sort of like people at the CDC learning about viruses in a contained space. Like you want to do it in the right context, and the internet is not a very good context for all of these contextless rage bait stories about, you know, this or that group gone wild. And I have found consistently um, that every time you look into these stories, they're wildly uh, right, just misrepresented and confused. And they're far more complicated than you thought they were and less egregious. You know, I, it's just so on some level, I'm not saying it has to be cynical, but the output is cynical. It's they're selling a um, a whole lot of lies, whether they're intending to do that or not. Mm-hmm. I think you have a good video on that, Chris, Chrissy, on a uh, Gadsad in oh, particular. Fine. I, I <laughs> I'll, I'll plug for you. I'll vouch for that video. <laughs> I think you unpack that very nicely. I that, that was the first video I ever did, and I still have. Um, people who, who bring it up and it's like, I, you know, if I had the energy, I would do a lot more of those. But it got to the point where it's like every li- literally everything he says here is wrong. It's a good just, case study, you know, <laughs> and, and I mean. If if I had to make a bet on the like uh, ignorant or evil question that often comes up in these kind of debates, like I, I, I do lean more towards, you know, ignorant. And I don't mean that in like a sense that they're low IQ, though I think there is a weird fixation on IQs in a lot of these groups. Like <laughs> I what I think is going on is that they really don't value context in the same kind of way. And I keep coming back to this that like I have experienced an allergic reaction to trying to present 
broader context around questions about things like conspiracy theories that like mm-hmm. how how views about cultural Marxism are directly tied to the Turner Diaries and, and like white nationalist mythology and things like that. Like they view that stuff as at best unimportant and at worst an attempt to slander the people who are making otherwise reasonable conversations. So the problem is context generally gets boiled down to slander in their view because, again, they have this feeling that like the the rational truth, right, the pure form of the truth is sitting out there somewhere in a way that can be, you know, grasped and debated separate from all of these complex scenarios in which it's playing out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think there is also the thing where we should just be honest, like getting on the wrong side of a passionate lefty can be a frustrating experience. Let's just, let's all sure. own, own that <laughs> one, right? And I think, yeah. like, you know, anyone who's ever tried to talk, you know, like, like you know, challenge the dominant narrative of the Bernie Sanders campaign or talk to a real diehard social justice person, you know, and say, maybe I'm actually not sure about this cultural appropriation concept. That's annoying, but, like, I, I don't think it's this existential threat that they seem to think it is. Like... <laughs> I mean, look, there's just this fundamental truth that, like, disagreement is disagreeable, you know? Like, it can be a little bit unpleasant to have these conversations. And I think the better elements of the left just bite that bullet and say, yeah, you know what? Talking about racism, calling out racism might be hard. It might be uncomfortable. Guess what? It's the lesser evil, and it's easily the lesser evil to tolerating existing structures of exclusion and oppression. And I think Mm -hmm. they just have this thing of, like, I want to be able to hold... It's not even like I'm being prevented from holding these views. It's like I'm I'm being judged for holding them. And I don't like that I'm being judged for holding them. And I don't want people to judge me for being a misogynist. And it's like... That's just the cost of doing business in a pluralist yeah. society, you know? Like, that's just a price we all have to pay. I'm sure plenty of, like, Republicans would think I was a jerk. People on the left think I'm a jerk, because I'm not the same type of lefty as they are. That's just the price I mean, we all pay, you know? This is, this is a classic problem that conservatives have had for a while, which is... Like they they are fine with their views. What they don't like so much is that like culture, broadly speaking, seems to be against their views and make fun of them. And I think that you see the same thing with the intellectual dark web folks is that like they they don't like that this feminism stuff is all pervasive uh, through the culture. And they don't like that in in, in spheres like Twitter, they can get dogpiled really hard for expressing their positions. And I get it. Like you said, it is it can be really frustrating. And I think everyone on the left knows at least some group of individuals on the left who they're not huge fans of. Um, It's just this, it's like you said about turning that into an existential crisis where, so this comes back to the grievance studies folks for me, where it's like, I can give you a top five list of the things that I think are wrong with academia and like liberal bias maybe is five, like maybe cracks the top 10, but like the major (laughs) issues there are all much more structural issues, but they're not sexy issues. What's Mm -hmm. sexy is talking about people shouting in professors' faces on campuses. Yeah, the left really is. You know that groundskeeper Willie meme where it's like, uh, yeah, the Scots and the Irish and the uh, you know the the English and the the Scots and the Scots and the Scots. The Scots ruined Scotland. Like, like that, that, that is the you know yeah. you pick I, your section of the left and that applies. Sorry, Chrissy. No, it's uh, I was interrupting. Um, I I have found myself, and especially recently, and especially in terms of the very 
passionate primary um, that many people had, uh, finding myself just making sure I pissed everybody off. You know? <laughs> like, uh, because I was a Bernie Sanders supporter who thought that a lot of the things that Bernie Sanders supporters were doing was counterproductive yeah. and a bad idea and not getting, you know, and I, um, uh, I think that we need to really look at that and we need to learn from it because I think we did fuck up. You know, we had, um, we were too quick to anger. We were too scorched earth when we did go angry. We were, um, not looking at it from a perspective of, well, I may not like liberal feminists all that much, but they are reliable voters. <laughs> so yeah. maybe be nice to them <laughs> this once, just this once, you know, so go back to yelling at them later. <laughs> let me give you all a thesis on sort of what's happening there and you can all tear it down. Cause I can actually, I'm actually, I think you all, are probably pretty solid lefties. I might be the only person on the call who sort of unabashedly um, calls themselves a liberal, so... No, I'm also one, but okay. yeah, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, so, well, I mean, although I'm very much to the left of the political centre of gravity in this country, I'm happy to play the comparative moderate on this call. What I see with the Bernie Sanders primary, especially if I spend too much time on Twitter, is just <laughs> a profound lack of trust... <laughs> between, let's call it Sanders Democrats and, like, mainstream Democrats. Let's just call it that for the sake of it. Where it's not just, like, they disagree. It's like both sides have convinced themselves that the other side would rather have Donald Trump than lose. Mm. And I just, by and large, I don't think that's true of either side. I'm sure you can find some bad apples in both camps, but um, I, I think there's sort of a slightly, there's a lack of trust there that doesn't quite match the reality. So I have a lack of trust for Republicans because every single time they're in office, they do everything they can to stop young people, poor people and black people from voting, right? They're not a political foe who's playing by the same rules that I am. Um, but I think the lack of trust can be a little overblown. And another example Job mentioned would be between, like, economic analysis and social justice analysis. I think people <clears throat> think that if you say, hey, some of this behaviour from the Sanders campaign, not all Sanders supporters, of course, some of it read a little bit sexist to me, then to some people that's just a form of, like, liberal trolling, and all you're really trying to do is stop people getting health care. This is not possible that you actually, whether correctly or not, were motivated by a concern for misogyny. Um, <clears throat> so I just see a lack of trust that I think... I'm not saying there aren't bad actors on the left and there aren't reasons to distrust each other, but it seems to me that the lack of trust has gotten beyond what a, a sort of rational assessment would dictate. So you might disagree with the premise of that, go ahead, and then if you agree with the premise, what are we to do with it? I'm so okay if to I, meet up with lefties on that one. Uh, go, go ahead, Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Just, I guess uh, what I would say to that is, like, I think, you know, spending too much time online and on the in these online debates where people are just like, incredibly vitriolic to one another, like, can really, like, warp your, or, uh, like, kaleidoscope yeah. your perspective on some of this stuff. But, you know, from, I think, like, 
as somebody who also supported Sanders and saw him as kind of like a potential vehicle to bring about some kind of like social democratic reforms and so on and so forth. Like, it's not that I distrust like the average person who thinks that like Biden is the safe bet or whatever, that I fundamentally think that they want Trump in office. But I do think that the, um, like a lot of the people who already are empowered by the Democratic Party in the sense of like and are its its key decision makers, like they would rather lose to Trump than to see Bernie um, uh, become the nominee. And I think that uh, that has a lot more to do with the these kind of not to be a class reductionist here, but like the kinds of class distinctions that pertain between like the people who advocate explicitly for like a continuation of a, of a certain kind, or I guess what they would see as like a return to a certain kind of neoliberal order, like from um, you know the aberration that is Trumpism. But you know, I think like if there's a lot of big talk from uh, the kind of main um, outlets of like democratic party ideas about like trump being an existential threat to democracy and so on and so forth but my feeling is that they don't actually act that way like and that that's a lot of kind of hot air and they don't they don't see him that way and there's actually a willingness to like engage with uh republicans as like closer to and uh, um like closer to their position than uh uh, kind of someone who would call themselves a socialist. I, uh, I, I really am not sure that's right. I mean, don't get me wrong, the democratic establishment, whatever that word turns out to mean, clearly doesn't like Sanders, don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't buy that they, they dislike Trump less. Um, I think they want to win. I think they do view him as an existential threat. Now, um, that, that is in contrast to, say, the British Labour Party, where the right-wingers in that party clearly could not tolerate Corbyn and actively yeah. worked to undermine him. I don't think we've gotten quite to that. I mean, that's a disagreement about the sort of facts about the case, as opposed to, like, how do we rebuild the left? I, I my, my general feeling is I don't think Democrats in the US have got to that point yet, but we can respectfully disagree. I think... I think there's more than one way to frame things. There's a more um, charitable way and a less charitable way to frame things. I don't think that, um, I, I definitely think that the Democratic establishment did not want Sanders specifically. Like, and there were probably reasons they didn't want him. One is that, you know, I, I think that he made a mistake after he ran for, uh, as a Democrat, in the last election, he went back to being an independent and then only came back to being a Democrat uh, when he wanted another election. So I think they felt that, you know, he wasn't a good party person. And, you know, I mean, maybe that's a valid concern and maybe it isn't, but you can understand that concern. I, I think we could have still won, but... Uh, you know, it's uh, I, one thing in America, if you are on the left, understand that you're going very much against the grain and there are going to be structural as well as um, as well as just people who don't know what, you know, or don't believe you. It did not surprise me that there were a lot of, say, black people who didn't vote for Sanders yeah, down south. 
I think that there are a lot of gaps of trust in on the left, and they fall along uh, many different fault lines. And we have to really be honest about that with ourselves and say, if we're going to come together, we're going to have to start understanding and looking at each other's why we feel the way that we do. Um, and not be so quick to attack each other uh, over every little thing. I, again, I, you know, I when I say I don't care for liberal feminists, what I mean is I don't care for feminists who um, are not, who don't like to talk about class or money mm-hmm. issues and the importance of that on, on the lives of women everywhere. Um, or who want to uh, sort of turn a blind eye to certain types of racism or certain types of um, uh, other types of oppression that are that may be out there and affecting many women. I, I don't mean that I dislike women just because, you know, they're uh, they're not as educated. There's been a lot of propaganda making communism and socialism a bad word, making those ideas untenable to even think about, you know, the fact that that is starting to crumble now as the climate is uh, breaking down and as we're really seeing just how bad capitalism has produced. And and I'm sorry if I'm going into stuff that you already totally disagree with, um, but that's where I'm at. Like capitalism is going to kill us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and uh, it's it's time to start talking about how to not die. Um, but uh, so that's where my frustration lies. But it won't get anywhere uh, if I just insult all the women who are out there who do care. I mean, these are women who do care about some things, and they just haven't quite. Uh, you know, these are complicated and difficult problems, and you need to be able to explain that to people. And I've, I've been able to explain that to people, but if you're operating from, say, a misogynist point of view that just says, oh, look at Karen, doesn't give a fuck. Well, is Karen a nurse or a teacher who spends her life in a shitty job helping people? Is she? Because maybe she does give a fuck and maybe you're not you're just not taking the time to talk to her about it in a respectful way that she's going to listen to you and not think, oh, look at this jackass. You know, Mm -hmm. I I agree. And I think what we were talking about earlier with the lack of trust um, plays into that a lot. There is almost an aesthetic barrier, because when you look at, say, you know, there are Democratic pundits who didn't want Bernie to win. There are, you know, New York op-eds, New York Times op-eds, uh, equivocating Trump and Bernie and things like that. And a lot of there were, you know, Elizabeth Warren had her time in the sun uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of different candidates got a boost and like had media outlets looking at her. And I think there is sort of a cynicism among lefties, I might just be pulling this from Twitter where nothing matters. But, you know, uh, there is an aesthetic to say Liz Warren 
who I would have been happy to vote for had she been the nominee. But there is an aesthetic where it's like, you know, white, liberal, academic, kind of wine mommy. And like there's almost an assumption that if you do not support Bernie Sanders and you're supporting any of these other candidates, um, you are automatically propping up this class that the pundits in the party who don't want Bernie belong to you. You're propping up the class at the New York Times, these well-off folks. And it's weird because there's also a sense on the left that, you know, a lot of Republicans have this false consciousness of like where they are in the world. And that if we imposed or if we explained to them various, you know, left ideas, they would recognize that the struggles that they need to fight for as opposed to the ones they are fighting for are more important. So there's almost sort of a double standard where we're willing to have the conversation, you know, with, you know, poor right wingers and anyone who could possibly support Mayor Pete or, um, or Liz or Kamala has to be part of this property owning class. And they probably live in an HOA somewhere. And that's just <laughs> not the case. You can have sort of a, a false consciousness if that's the model you want to go off for basically any perspective you're working from. Yeah. I, I so agree. Like, so I'm talking a little bit much here. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points. Um, so I was a Warren supporter, and let me tell you, for a lot of people, that is just a mark that you're an ideological enemy, which seems bizarre to me, given that if I gave you both of their platforms on paper, I don't think you'd be able to tell the the difference. Um, and there's a sort of pragmatic thing there. So to your point, Chrissy, about, like, they, they specifically didn't want Sanders, right? Now, how far is it an opposition to the policy or just, like, this particular dude we don't like because, say, he's not a Democrat mm-hmm. or bitter feelings about 2016 and, you know, whether or not you think that's valid? My feeling it was probably a bit of both. Like, they specifically didn't want Sanders and they also would prefer not to have a progressive, a strongly progressive platform. And I think that the the ideological opposition is more cynical than you might think. It's not even that they really hate social democracy. I think they probably haven't even thought about it very much. I think they want to get re-elected, and they think running on a more left-wing platform is riskier. Again, they they may well be wrong in that. Um, And so my question would, would be with Warren is, if at least part of it is an opposition to Sanders then could we get the same policy? You know, could we get the outcomes we want just by running someone else? Or would we have a a better chance of success? And so I think there's a sort of pragmatic case for Warren in that she did seem more able to attract um, people who aren't necessarily starting from a position of both feet in for socialism, you know? Um, But with that said, it, it again circles back to this lack of trust thing in that the fact that Warren was able to attract New York Times columnists, say, was in itself seen as a reason to distrust her. So it seems like we're kind of in a catch-22, where to get the support of people who are both feet in on socialism, you need to say, I am against the system, I am against the Democratic Party, I am against the New York Times. But in saying that, you're, you're, that's just not enough. Those people who are really into that 
um, that's not enough to get you... It's only maybe 20% of the electorate or something. It's not enough to win the nomination. So we're in a catch-22 where to get the hardcore socialists and to gain their trust, you need to say things that will lose you the trust of the more normie Dems. But if you market yourself to the more normie Dems, you'll lose the trust of the hardcore socialists in a way that has everything to do with rhetoric and nothing to do with policy, as far as I can tell. So anyway, that was a bit long. I'll, I'll stop talking and let you guys go. Um, it's weird for me to be the one jumping in with a little bit of optimism here, but I do have at least some sort of optimism on this left-wing conflict front in the sense that I feel, you know, I was a Warren supporter as well, and it has been depressing to watch how this um, primary has ultimately played out. Um, but it looks to me, I guess, a little bit less like you know, a serious, huge problem that's that's not going to be ever resolved within the left and more of like a voter paradox kind of problem that was heavily exacerbated by the presence of Trump in mm. this election that like you have folks on the far left who understandably, rationally want, you know, universal health care. And then you have folks towards the middle who understandably, rationally want to get the malignant narcissist out of office as soon as humanly possible. And that like those two polls sucked up all the oxygen in the room. And that's why Warren, I think, had no luck in this particular election, but why I think you're right that her policies fundamentally are where the party has ended up broadly speaking and that you see Biden tacking in that direction to some extent, even though he's moving towards the primary, or moving towards the general election at this point. And I think that is partly because, you know, we, we get into this very polarized place during primaries because that's what primaries are partly for, to try to figure out dif differences within the group. But at the end of the day, I think the vast majority of people, you know, if you took it out of the Twitter debate context and asked them, do you support a Mills style liberal society where people are governed as minimally as possible and free to do what they want? You would have almost 100 percent agreement on that. And if you ask them if they were in favor of, you know, more progressive economic agendas, you probably see less agreement like my. Some 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 of my my parentals, for example, were not on board with Warren because they saw her as too far left. But I do think at, at the you know, at the end, the post Trump world, you're going to see the party shifting left because there's going to be less of that animus to stick towards the middle out of fear of the next really, really terrible person who comes along. And so I think there will be more of a pull towards, um, you know, because, again, at the end of the day, we're also, I think, all progressives. Like, I think we all believe that society can move forward and that the purpose of society should be to improve people's quality of life by moving forward. So, you know, the differences on incrementalism versus radical change are probably never going to go away. But I do think we are entertaining options that weren't on the table 10 years ago. And it's partly because we've successfully moved the, the Overton window on the, the social justice end a great deal. And we want to try to move that window on the economic end too now, it seems like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting. So I'm trying to think how to like, how, how to come at this, you know, the, so I, I guess like there was a lot of, distrust around Warren, you know, give, I think like one of the things that Sanders kind of represents for a lot of people was like a certain kind of consistency of a, of a set of values, you know, like we could go back years and years and kind of look at who he is and be like, yeah, like here he was speaking in like whatever, 1985. And he was saying much the same thing that he's saying today. And I think there's a certain respect for that. And as well, I think a lot of young people gravitated to Sanders because he, 
came from an era where like the left had actually won political victories you know like he was uh present to the civil rights movement and this kind of thing and like people are are, are really drawn to that and i think like one of my issues with this idea of like progressivism and like um like a progressive liberalism let's say is that under like what i would describe as like neoliberalism which to my understanding is like um an economic but also like moral order you know and i see some shaking heads but uh so (laughs) it's like when i see like a biden or something like that like to me that represents um like that is not a direction in which like i want to be progressing and i think that like the i don't see any victories on the horizon with like a biden presidency in terms of the core issues of like climate of like economic and racial justice like i i i just i i don't think that um like when we look at the kind of legacy of like the Obama administration, you know, I think that was a radicalizing point for a lot of people who were just kind of had the default liberalism of our society, like myself included, you know, like, of course, I was like excited to see Obama win in 2008. And by, but by the end of uh, the Obama presidency, you know, when we're handed Trump and like we've been in these um, um really brutal wars that uh, I obviously opposed. And there's been this kind of like increase of, uh, of, of surveillance and intensification of, of, of uh, like the insecurity that comes along with living under capitalist labor markets. Like all that stuff has just been ramped up and up and up. And I think that uh, in many ways, like Trump was a reaction to that. I think it's a bad reaction to that. I think it's a deeply troubling and like frightening reaction to that, which rather than wanting to break with it entirely would say like, oh, if only we could get these systems working right, then the right people will come out. And that's always going to be like the people at the top of the racial hierarchy, you know, and that's a very dark conclusion. Um, and so but I think returning to, with with a Biden, for example, like returning to the conditions that gave us a Trump, you know, that's that's not a victory. Like that's not a progressive path in the sense of like moving towards something. I think that rather that's like a forking path going off down uh, in, in, in the wrong direction. So it's like, I'm not saying like I wouldn't vote for a Biden, let's say like, but I, you know, you're not going to hear me support him. And I don't think that it's going to be possible to really get progressive uh, concessions because I don't really see a lot of leverage on the left. I hear what you're saying about like the shift of the Overton window, but I think that, um, it, the the kind of like Warrens and uh, Bernies within the Democratic Party like basically played all their cards too early and didn't hold back. Like it's hard for me to imagine them having run a more conciliatory campaign rather than a more um, like strongly oppositional campaign that really like set up contrasts between the Bidens and the Buttigieg's and their own platforms. You know, and like I, I, like you did see a bit of that with Warren on the debate stage, but I think Bernie overall was too conciliatory. Especially as he was held up as the one who is supposed to be the kind of vehicle for these progress uh, for these changes and and for these kind of like social democratic um, uh, reforms. So, yeah, I guess I I see it as more more conflictual. And like, I, so maybe it's good that there is some like ideological shift, but in terms of political victories, like I'm not really the I, I'm not seeing those. You know, Biden is a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> I think he really like, is. He was everyone's yeah. like fourteenth choice, right? Like, yeah, I'd have, I'd have taken sure. probably another moderate over Biden. Uh, I mean, it's like God. I, I, I mean, better than Bloomberg. <laughs> that was. <laughs> yeah. That is some faint freaking praise. Let me tell yeah. you. 
<laughs> and there is, I mean, there, look, there's something to be said for like the African community, African American community genuinely likes Biden to some extent, as well as being a tactical choice that like they do feel like, and like, you know, there are, I, I, I hate that I'm going to spend the next several months being defending Biden rather than Warren, because I just do think she was a much better choice. Um, but like, you know, as some of my friends from Australia were pointing out, like they would much rather have Biden than any of the people they're currently allowed to vote for. So, like, he is he is better in a lot of ways than what all of other people are dealing with in the world right now. He is still not the best option. Um, but, you know, I also like I, I understand King, where you're coming from about the like seeing him as as not actually progress. I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I do think that generally speaking he could be a vehicle for some amount of slow incremental progress which might be the only thing that's possible right now because i think something yeah. we have to acknowledge is that like no amount of getting things right on the left does much when when the right is still very much down a rabbit hole that we can't pull them out of and like the spiral is going to kind of continue because a large bulk of the population just does not like the current reality that we're living in and wants to live in a different reality and is going to continue to fight to try to make that their reality in a way that like is diametrically opposed to the kind of social progress we have in mind yeah so I, what I, do you guys think about oh sorry chrissy go ahead i, I was gonna like part of it um and, and i think i know this because i'm old uh you know we've talked a lot about young voters and i'm an older voter but you I think the Democratic Party today was built around failure, massive failure during the 70s and 80s to get a more progressive message across. They, uh, the losses to people like Reagan uh, by Mondale and Dukakis and people like that were huge. They were devastated. They, weren't, they didn't lose a little bit. They lost by, like, huge swaths of numbers. And I think that there is a... Uh, and then until they had a more neoliberal model, the new way of the Clintons, they didn't see any traction at all. Uh, I think their mistake is in not realizing that the world has turned and changed a lot since the 1980s. And... Um, so you can't operate from that model anymore. It's a very different, in some ways, very similar America, but in a lot of ways, very different America. And the, uh, Reaganomics has helped for better or for worse, craft our current reality that is not good. And a lot of people have, are in a different place now. I, I also think both the, um, political moderates or the establishment and the left can misread the ideological compromises that the Democratic Party made to gain power under Clinton in thinking about them primarily as economics, where I would think the most salient compromises they made in that period to gain power would probably have been with respect to social issues, particularly race. Because I actually think the fear that a lot of people have um, about voting for Democrats isn't anything to do with economics. It's a fear of like white people being replaced, essentially, that keeps them in the Republican column. So an interesting statistic is that when Clinton took office, the number of Americans 
who said they would be deeply uncomfortable if a close family uh, member married a black person was 72% in 1992 when he took office. When he left office, it was 30%, and now it's somewhere in the teens, right? So still terrifyingly high, but it was a majority of white America when he took office. And I think I actually would take the view that Clinton moderating on economics was probably a fairly small factor in him winning. It got some, like, Wall Street Journal... New York Times columnists to back him, but they're not a lot of voters. I actually think him going hard on criminal justice, which is a racialized issue, on welfare, which is a racialized issue, I think it was those compromises that let him win. And I think hopefully, maybe optimistically, we're now living in an America where public opinion has changed quite radically on that. And maybe those sorts of compromises aren't necessary. Um, but I actually think everyone took the message away that Clinton won because he moderated on economics, and I'm not really sure that that's true. No. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the legacy of the Clinton presidency is uh, those things like the crime bill, mass incarceration, like more incarcerated people in the United States than any other country or civilization in the history of the world, you know? And those are like highly racialized um, uh, issues. So it's like, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding you here. It's, are you saying that he compromised to a kind of racism that was inherent in the like broad, um, the, the like broad American white public, you know, and by appealing to that racism, he was able to gain power. Like, is that yes. the case that you're making? Yeah. Right now? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah. So that's not a defense and- of it at all. Um, I think he was faced with a, a, a very ugly moral choice of, as he saw it, he can have his sister-soldier moment and say things to reassure um, white Americans while sort of saying to black America, look, just work with me through this and I'll do right by you at the end of the day. Or he could lose and we could just continue with Reaganism. I think I think he felt he didn't have any other choice. Maybe he did. I don't know. Um, we now know from inside accounts that he felt bad about it and he's regretted it since then. But I think that was the moral compromise that was made and the sorts of policies that we saw under Reagan that destroyed millions of people's lives instead of arresting that or reversing course under um, Clinton. They continued and in some respects accelerated to the point where we're only now beginning to be able to talk about reversing that tide. And it's a great stain on his legacy it's a great stain on the democratic party and no it's a sort of a liberal i'll vote democrat whoever there's no sugarcoating that that is what it is you know mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm i'm pretty pessimistic about both biden and broadly you know just the take um about how a neoliberal candidate will make progress in a meaningful sense. I'm just very cynical for material conditions reasons, but I will say there is some optimism in the sense that like, I am feeling that organizing on a grassroots level beyond electoral politics does seem to be 
a light in the tunnel for me, just as an example, like, you know, my last year when I was organizing uh, with grad students, I did run into, there was a big argument. There was a person who showed up and was like pro Pete Buttigieg and thought broadly the Democratic Party the Democratic Party was too far left, not just like Bernie or, or <laughs> and still like there was no there was no like flame war. It was it was a tense conversation, but we were all sitting in and it, he was it was basically a mayor Pete Stan arguing with some ANCOMs, <laughs> which, like, I find it hilarious. And he still showed up to, you know, we had a, a action, a march, we, we stormed the admin building. And I think a sense of shared struggle in real life, face to face, um, once we can do that and, and not get a disease, that would be nice. But, like, that is part of my shift towards, I think, you know, grassroots shared struggle is a path forward and you know for the followers of you on twitter who see me despairing about electoralism that is tempered with you know you know stronger belief in you know actual face-to-face conversation with people who share similar struggles with you so i think it is good that you pointed out toby as well that like the the Faustian bargain with white America that was made in the 90s by the Democrats is still the same Faustian bargain we're making right now. And we probably have to continue making like for the foreseeable future. It's it feels like I don't I just, you know, we we had this hope. I mean, it wasn't like a strong hope, but there was this, you know, at least illusion for a while that like we were moving towards like discussions of a society that could be genuinely multicultural and that like, you know, setting aside cracks about, uh, you know, great replacement and, and making fun of the the white nationalists that like people weren't going to take that stuff super seriously. But I think we all now see that like those concerns are just as alive and well, they've they've sort of mutated in the language that they come through in. But there is still a large chunk of the the society that feels like they are part of an in-group that is under attack and that reflects the the true America that uh, is being pushed aside by all of the kind of groups that we're more sympathetic to. And like, I just don't, I don't see that there's a good way to get them to sort of break out of this uh, zero sum oppositional attitude with us. And so we are in essence forced by their attitude into an oppositional attitude where we have to kind of just push along with our attempts at social progress and hope that, you know, like with the gay, like that most that more things end up like the gay rights question where a bunch of them just get over it rather than end up like the abortion question where we spend 50 or 60 years debating it and we backslide, you know, into effectively criminalizing it again and such like that. So, you know, I don't don't think we're going to see like universal progress. I'm not like super optimistic about Biden. I just think that like, you know, Biden could manipulate a public option or something like that, <laughs> like something better than the alternative, which is going to be burning it all down. Um, we're running over time. Let me make this point finally, and then anyone who wants to um, say anything to close out. But when I say I am a liberal democratic voter, here's sort of where I'm coming from, is it's not so much a commitment to... Um, 
incrementalism or like I love Joe Biden, I certainly don't. Um, it's more like, you know, you can have a, a, a viewpoint of, and an analysis, a pair of glasses through which you view the world, where the primary thing we're looking at in American political history is economic and it's about the ruling class and capitalism and neoliberalism. I think there's a lot of truth to that analysis, but I think, and I think it's an addition, not a contradiction. You also have to have the analysis where you view um, American political history as primarily about race. And the sort of central question we've been arguing and debating and compromising over basically forever is, are black people human beings? Do they get the same rights and protections as the rest of us? Do they get the same social standing? Are they able to vote and politically participate? And like I say, like we just did with the Clinton thing, I think any period of American history, you can break it down about race. And even when it seems like we're talking about something else like welfare, we're actually still just talking about race. And the way in which I'm a liberal is like, to my mind, the fundamental partisan battle of America, and you know, the Republicans and Democrats have switched on this, but the battle has remained the same, is are we liberals or not? Do we believe that all people have basic rights and protections? Do we believe that all people should be able to vote? Do we believe that all people should have equal social standing? Or do we think that those rights and protections only apply to white people or to men? And I, I hope it's an addition, not a contradiction to the economic story. But like, I'm a liberal who always votes Democrat because like, that is the vehicle of not having the worst type of racist, not even not having racists, not having the worst types of racists in office. So that's like how I ground a sort of very classical liberalism, essentially, in the American context. So like, anyway, I'll pause that. That's sort of where I'm coming from. I mean, yeah, I'm super sympathetic to that as a Rawlsian kind of liberal at the end of the day. I think that, like, equal rights for everyone is the fundamental principle of a just society and and then followed quickly by um, redistribution of wealth for the sake of the maximization of the worst off among you. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, we can do some reaching out on some of those issues by, by like, especially, you know, you're talking, like, code switching is always a good trick, right? Talk mm -hmm. to people in the language that they are familiar with. If if people think in thinking terms, talk to them in thinking terms. And if they think in feeling terms, talk to them in feeling terms. And if they think in religious terms, you know, quote where Jesus says, uh, what you do to the worst among you is what you do to me. And then, like... Find some way to get them to hear what I think are still genuinely universal principles that we – universally true ethical principles that we are trying to move towards as a society. Yeah. I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what you say about race and seeing things through um, – there's one way to look at it through class and there's another way to look through it through race. To me, um, class, race – uh, sex, gender, these are inextricable from one another in our history. Yeah, so, I, for I instance, yeah, um, and they still are. Um, there's a reason that um, that ICE showed up and took people away from a um, a factory that had recently managed to sue. It's uh, where the workers had managed to sue and get some concessions. <laughs> and then ICE turns up and, and all of a sudden kids don't know where their parents are because they're gone. And, and those people who aren't um, undocumented immigrants still saw everybody being dragged out 
by cops. There's a reason that um, part of the farm bill is uh, uh, Trump talking about um, how we could possibly pay <laughs> people who work on farms less, which I'm not sure is physically possible. You know, like it, it's an amazing <laughs> concept to me that we could that that is even on the table considering where we already do but racism is part of why we're okay with that yes and uh, you know it it goes into the same thing this obsession with um people staying in their gendered roles and people uh and women specifically having their bodies available for policing uh and uh, specifically around uh, fertility, there's there's a reason that that's always coming up, and and part of that is about workers and money and producing a workforce and um, how you're going to be able to make sure they damn well do that. Hmm. And you know when we one of the things that this quarantine is revealed, you know, for instance, I saw that. Uh, women, depending on how you define it, um, either make up the wide majority of essential jobs to run the world or the vast majority of them. It, it's women doing the work that we actually can't live without. And it's black women specifically and uh, women of color, uh, Latinx, um and indigenous women who are doing these things more than anybody else. And we're treating them like shit and we are using these intersections of race and um, and gender and discrimination to make sure that we have this underclass to exploit, this yeah. enormous ability to exploit them. And so to me, there's uh, if you're talking about looking at um, class or at looking at um, race or at looking at gender. I can't think of a way to do it that doesn't fundamentally combine all of them together. It's like they're just the in the uh, deck of cards, the little card tower that is our uh, society right now. Like they are all in it together. And yeah. So, so any yeah. kind of <laughs> just, just to clarify my own view on this, certainly I'm not making a point against intersectionality. These things are obviously deeply connected. Um, um, what, what I'm saying is um, we have developed a number of different forms of analysis um, in order to understand that interconnectivity. There's sort of the social justice model, there's the you know, socialism or Marxist analysis and so on. So the metaphor I quite like here is one aquarium, many windows. We're dealing with one set of social relations of domination, right? There's one objective reality. But there's lots of different um, um, interpretive frames one can bring to that. So I'm just making a point... Um, a sort of in, for, for a sort of soft anti-foundationalism, I guess, in that we on the left should be comfortable with looking at this same interconnected thing from a number of different vantage points and sort of comparing them. So it's a epistemic, not an ontological point. Sorry, I just wanted to clarify. I, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I didn't mean that uh, you didn't understand that or agree with that. I, I think I'm 
trying to point out how and why I am not a liberal, mm. why I am specifically anti-capitalist, mm-hmm. and why I think liberalism has some inherent problems within it. Uh, so that's my position on the left is, is um, you know, uh, the thing about being on the left, like the capital L anti-capitalist left is you're, it, nobody's going to be happy with you because the other people on the left all will think you're not left enough <laughs> at the same time that, you know, everybody, <laughs> with, yeah. everybody else thinks you're like a, just a, an anarchist um, monster. Just out to just, yeah. yeah, monster. <laughs> Uh, and you can't make anybody happy. So I'm just yeah. living in that zone. But yes, that's where I'm at. Okay. I'm an anarchist monster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would totally echo a lot of things that Chrissy has just said. I think that was like a really excellent kind of exposition of uh, the way in which like class and race are like deeply interconnected. And um, maybe I could just add a couple things and say that I agree. Like I also like don't I personally identify as, as a liberal and like want to have some kind of conflict between like um, the left as I understand it and uh, liberalism. Um, and so like I was, uh, you know, not, um, not to be too class reductionist, but I was reading Marx recently. And, uh, one of the- <laughs> I like that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, one of the things- and he actually said that I thought was uh, is really compelling is that any given like mode of production is always like co-constituted with um, a certain kind of social um, like order, which in turn is a is itself a mode of production. And uh, so that I that that kind of vibed well with something else that I've been reading, which was uh, an essay by uh, the writer uh, Jackie Wang and so she wrote an essay about uh, racial capitalism where she talks about the way that like capitalism didn't um invent like racial and gender hierarchies like those those have existed outside of capitalism but those are um useful to capitalism and so it redeploys them generates them again and again and it is not a a system which is going to do away with those hierarchies and so when we're talking about like the democratic party and support for the democratic party even from like um a a pragmatic perspective i think like that's the kind of thing that we have to keep in mind is that that party at the end of the day is a party which represents like the interests of capital, which are going to continue to generate those same kinds of um, like racial and uh, gender hierarchies and are going to continue to exploit, exploit them as, as they kind of like evolve and continue to persist. Um, if you want, I can give you the liberal response to that super quick. <laughs> Is, um, I, I think there's a bit of a distinction to be made between capitalism as a total social system and highly concentrated property owning, right? So when you talk about the interests of capital, you're talking about the fact that some people own more than some countries and that gives them a lot of power, right? Like, I can agree with all of that. I would want to see a much more radically egalitarian society. Now, does that commit me to the view that systems of market exchange need to be entirely abolished. I think maybe in the long run it's something we might evolve past. But, like, you know, no. My my sort of vision of the world is sort of, at least in the short to medium run, is more like Bernie Sanders, i.e. Finland or Sweden or something like that, where we have 
regulated and constrained and localized systems of market exchange that serve valuable purposes and they produce good social goods. I don't think anyone can really argue that the government is particularly efficient at running factories or farms or we want um, a a, a government mode of production for iPhones or something. Um, But on the other hand, like that shouldn't be everything we do. It shouldn't be all of the society. I think the correct liberal view is not either pro or against capitalist. I think the correct liberal view is that markets are a tool that we have that work well and are appropriate in some circumstances and are clearly inappropriate in others, for instance, healthcare. So anyway, that's the sort of... You, you, might, you, you might all be shaking your heads and not agree with that, but that's the, sort <laughs> of, that's the sort of, I think, correct liberal view on capitalism, which, I mean, I do agree that this thing where everything is reduced to the profit motive and, like, we have to care more about billionaires paying higher taxes than we do about people not getting healthcare, that is going to kill us all. I agree with that. That much. But anyway, yeah. I think if I tried to take that apart, we would be here for another five hours. Yes. So yeah. maybe we should come back and, and do that some other time. I'd be happy to, but I, I'm going yeah. to... I agree that that is what liberals often think. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let me just say, um, I think we did a very good job of actualizing what we talked about, of like, you know, having a conversation, having differences, not letting a lack of trust get in the way of that. I thought that was really good, guys. Thank you. And yeah, organizing this. Yeah, thanks for uh, inviting us on. This has been a lot of fun and uh, nice to get to know you guys a little bit. Um, why don't we all end with a plug for our respective projects? Everyone just go and tell um, whoever ends up listening to this once more what they do and how people should follow them. Mm-hmm. I'm Chrissyosity on YouTube and Twitter. It's pretty easy. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, similarly, I have a podcast called The Poplar Tapes, available on pretty much all the podcasting platforms, and uh, we're on Twitter at The Poplar Tapes. Poplar as in the tree, not the not popular. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Gerbivore, Herbivore with a J, um, Gerb the Humanist, um, both on YouTube and some, some content on a podcast feed where you get podcasts. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at ETV Pod, and the Twitter names are Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space. They're both available on all your usual pod apps. Um, and I guess that leaves me. Um, I do the Political Philosophy Podcast. It's politicalphilosophypodcast.com for the website, and the Twitter <laughs> is Paul Phil Pod. Just PO, yeah. You'll find it yep. on the website. All right. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks Thank for doing this and coming on. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks again to all our listeners and especially to our patrons who make the show possible. I want to give a shout out to two new patrons. One is the T for Two podcast and another is a top tier $40 a month patron who has chosen to remain anonymous, which means we can cross backed by dark money off our cult bingo card. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And as always, I must thank our top tier patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb, 
volunteer this summer. Learn more at campquest.org. Certainly got your money's worth on that one this week. Uh, Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks to our forever and eternity top patron, Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVpod. And if you are an eccentric billionaire or if you notice just a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. But most importantly, remember... You are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.